PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast. It's Blake Briggs, co-host, co-founder. Again, greetings, salutations. Thanks for joining us. We got a special episode today. Just me doing the intro here. This is actually an episode with Iltafat and one of our lead editors, Dr. Shad Bab. Really excited to welcome him on the podcast. He's a tremendous resource. And if I could give a shout out, I thoroughly enjoyed training under him. And he's a fantastic pediatric mentor uh, to work with at Wake Forest University. He is our lead editor for pediatric emergency medicine. So everything you see produced at EM Board Bombs goes past his desk so he can make sure that we are not spitting out inaccuracies when it comes to pediatric emergency medicine. He is also a pediatric emergency medicine academic attending at Wake Forest Brenner Children's Hospital Emergency Department. I would be remiss, however, to not mention the EM rapid bombs before we get started, especially this holiday season. Residents, we know that the ITE is coming up in less than two months, so you want to be prepared for that test. Remember, with EM rapid bombs, we're preparing you not just for bores, but for life as well. If you're trying to nail down those basic fundamental emergency medicine pearls and facts, we also tell you some interesting facts that you probably would never learn in a textbook or learn online or learn from other sources. And you can find our Rapid Bombs podcast at emrapidbombs.supercast.com. You can also check the link in the bottom of this podcast, or you can just go to our main website, emboardbombs.com, and follow the prompts to get to the Rapid Bombs from there. Anyway. On with our show and on with our guest. Thanks for listening. We would be honored if you would join. Welcome back to EM Board Bombs. We're joined by a special guest here, Dr. Shad Bab. I'm happy to be here. Look forward to discussing viral URIs. He is one of our pediatric emergency medicine docs here at Wake Forest Baptist Health. Wake Forest School of Medicine, I don't know, we have a ton of names. Let's not get into those. <laughs> you know, like, I'd, I'd appreciate it. So Dr. Babb is actually uh, one of my own uh, kind of mentors and also attendings when I was a resident. And he still, to this day, when I need to discuss a case with him, will not let me forget a particular case that we had. Uh, this was now about nine years ago, nine to ten years ago, is what I'll say. And uh, are, do you remember this case? I do, but I'd like to start out by saying that you're much fitter now. Oh, so that's you can take up. you can take pride. I, in that. So first of all, I am much fitter now than I was in hashtag residency life. But you will never let me forget this case. Just just one time. You that's know. right. A small child. Small child came <laughs> to the emergency a small department. child. The kid was drinking a Gatorade bottle, Shad, and he was in a wheelchair because his mom couldn't lift him. Every time you say this story, it gets better. Next time, it'll be a protein shake that he was drinking. <laughs> he had a Gatorade bottle. Okay. He had a nursemaid's. Something so simple to reduce, but Hiltzpah could not manage to do it. <laughs> I just will never forget when you came back to your desk and you were like, oh, yeah, put that back in. Not a problem. You know, If you ever need help again, let me know. Uh, you know, before you graduate. I'm like, great, I'm about to graduate. What year? You were a third year then, I was right? a third year, yeah. That's what was so sad about it. I'll never forget that room. It was in that, like, you know, fast track type area. And I'll just never forget me walking into that kid wearing a diaper 
and somehow drinking a Gatorade. It was just so confusing to me, <laughs> drinking from one of those Gatorade bottles. That's and right. I was like, why is the kid in a wheelchair? He was sitting in an adult wheelchair because yeah. his mom couldn't carry his him back. His mom literally couldn't carry him back. Of how I, I guess that's what contributed to it as well. The, the size, the weight, maybe the arm yanking. I, I, whatever you have to tell yourself. <laughs> Just, ah, okay. All right. You know, I shouldn't have brought it up uh, myself. But uh, anyways, we'll continue. So anyways, uh, what we're going to talk about today, this is going to be part one of two. Part one is going to be covering RSV, bronchiolitis. And then part two is going to be covering influenza. We're obviously focusing from a pediatric standpoint. So let's talk about the RSV aspect first. That's what we're going to get into. Um, RSV bronchiolitis, just quickly, age groups, duration of it. What are some of the key, key pointers? Well, sure. To start with, RSV is a virus that causes bronchiolitis. They're oftentimes used as synonymous terms, particularly by parents. They say that the patient has bronchiolitis or they have RSV. They're, they're not exactly the same thing. Bronchiolitis can be caused by lots of different viral agents, but RSV is the most common and the most severe form. Uh, in, ge- in general, anyone can get RSV, I suppose, uh, e- even adults. As you age, though, uh, RSV becomes what looks more like a common cold in, in an older child or an adult. Mm. It's really neonates that have the biggest uh, problem. Uh, and even young infants after the neonatal period have trouble with RSV. Of note here recently in the post-COVID era, RSV has affected much more severely even older children. So we see even two, three, four, five-year-olds who will have severe respiratory distress and mm. hypoxia that we didn't used to see in that age group. We used to be confined only to younger children. Interesting. And we'll get into some of that as well. And that was one of the reasons why we're talking about RSV and doing a quick kind of 10-minute episode on RSVs because of uh, what you mentioned. Um, what makes RSV a bit unique compared to some of the other typical viral illnesses, um, you know, non such as just a typical coronavirus, again, not talking about SARS-CoV-2? Certainly the severity uh, of RSV compared to other viral illnesses, it has a certain predilection for the lower respiratory tract that other viruses don't have Mm -hmm. so that you get more upper respiratory infections with these other viruses, but RSV almost preferentially, you know, it is a problem in the lower respiratory tract producing kind of a viral pneumonia. Uh, And then as you might expect, you'll get much uh, more severe respiratory distress and hypoxia associated with it. It also has a much longer term of illness in general. Natural course of a adenovirus, say, infection, or even say the flu is probably something like a week to ten days, whereas RSV is much closer to a three to four week process. So yeah, it can be around for a while then. Uh, you know, some of the key physical exam findings. I think you're looking for things that you're looking for for any respiratory illness. For the most part, you're looking for respiratory distress, so retractions and flaring. You're looking for belly breathing, head bobbing. Uh, obviously, on the vitals, you're looking for a tachycardia and a tachypnea. You're looking for some hypoxia. Mm. on their uh their vital signs it's got that distinct physical exam finding mm. when you listen though it, That's it's, right. it's always i've heard it described so many different ways but what's your favorite <laughs> description my favorite is somebody like like a crackle and pop sound mm. uh is, is how i've heard it be described i've heard it be described as um what are those things those cushions that you wrap you know sensitive things in or whatever bubble in boxing wrap. like bubble wrap mm-hmm. like someone taking bubble wrap and mashing it together yeah, as it well this People describe it as a washing machine sometimes. Yeah. I don't. I think that's my least favorite one because yeah, I, I don't know why that, that <laughs> I don't sounds like that. But people say machine. that a lot. Yeah, um, that's right. There's definitely a very coarse nature to the to the breath sounds that you hear there. That 
classically right or, or you know described as ronkai right. that's that that word is not particularly useful i think to most people no. it's a word that doesn't mean anything to them unless no. you clearly define it as this sound they're listening to so maybe that's what we should be doing like you should listen to these lungs and now subsequently always say that's ronkai i know i know it's just it, it looks great in the chart it looks great in the chart is what i'll say moving along you know we talked about uh, some of the age groups uh, what makes it a bit unique some of the signs symptoms and physical exam findings you alluded to this earlier. It's been around for a long time. It seems to be getting a lot of attention now. We're seeing PICUs uh, fill up with you know, patients who have RSV. Is there a reason why? Do we know why? Or just a bad RSV season? I think it, yeah, well, it, certainly RSV comes in waves like the flu. And there are, unlike, well, like the flu, there are times when it's more severe and less severe year on year. This year is certainly very bad. It's hard to say if that's just something that happened this year. Or if it really is related, probably, you know, to the immune surveillance that's occurred. Everyone has been masked and, you know, social distanced for uh, several years. Yeah. Now you take all those masks off. And I think that's my, my thought is that's probably why we're seeing the older kids be much sicker. Those kids who are two or three who have usually already had RSV 10 times by now have never had it. And this is their <laughs> primary right. RSV infection. Yeah. And so maybe it has less to do with the age of the patient, which is what we always assumed, and more to do with the immunological naivety to the the disease so they just mm. haven't seen it before i'm not sure but we're certainly seeing a lot more kids with it and a lot of kids more severely ill than we usually have historically right, right. um so you're uh, legendary in our department known for some of your efficiency just being able to churn through a really busy pediatric er safely effectively um so i was really interested uh in hearing from you your workups, you know, on these kids, how, I mean, our pediatric ERs have been super full, right? So some of these kids, a lot of these kids are showing up pretty sick. So how are you separating out a lot of these kids when you see them in your ER? What is uh, Dr. Bab looking at immediately when he's looking at a kid and, and there's concern for maybe bronchiolitis or just, you know, upper respiratory tract? I think the thing that gets overlooked the most commonly is that they should take you should take their shirt off. That doesn't always happen, but you should take right. their shirt off because this gives you like an immediate gestalt about what's going on with this patient. Is this patient sick or not? And that's really largely what you're trying to figure out. Is this person sick or not? Uh, if they don't have any retractions or work of breathing and their vitals are not terrible, then really the only things you would be keeping them for after that would be a significant decrease in PO intake, essentially. So it's such that you thought they couldn't stay hydrated. Generally speaking, those th those things come together, right? You find this hypoxia in the same kid that you find the work of breathing in, right. and the same kid you find can't take PO because they're breathing so hard. So it's it's unusual to find PO as an isolated problem. If they're undressed, you, you can tell just by walking in the room they have bronchiolitis. They sound the same with your stethoscope as they do without. Mm. So if they're not having any work of breathing problems and their vitals look okay, then all you really have left to do is determine how their PO intake is. You know, I still remember that from being a resident with you, is you would say, you know, what does their chest look like? You know, like, what do they look like? You can't really just tell that just by peeking, you know, at their neck or, or their upper chest, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you that's need right. to get a good look. You can get fooled pretty easily. Yeah. You know, a child who looks pretty peaceful around the neck, and you pull their shirt off or pull their shirt way up, and all of a sudden, you know, you can yeah. count their ribs. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this, this is a real problem. This isn't going well, right? I've heard, you know, mixed things on this in terms of the utility of an RSV test. A lot of our listeners work at a shop that they might not necessarily have the ability to get an RSV. Some of our, you know, satellite ERs, I know, don't have that ability. 
uh, to get a rapid you know, RSV test. When is that test really useful? And should it be used as a screening tool in an otherwise healthy kid? When it's useful could be difficult to define because unless we're going to exclude right off the bat that sometimes we're testing because the parents want a certain test done. So right. that by far, I think the largest proportion of patients who are, you know, that are going to get an RSV test are getting it because the mom wants or dad, you know, wants to have an answer. Do they have RSV or not? Right. By and large, after that, you can diagnose someone with bronchiolitis without testing them for RSV. The RSV would really only change your discussion with them about how long they might be sick. Hmm. If they had bronchiolitis from RSV, you would expect a longer course because of adenovirus, but they sounded like RSV when you were listening to them. You might tell them, look, it probably won't be a month. It might only be 10 or 14 days maybe before you're getting better. So that's relevant information, but it's not really relevant to the disposition side of it. Yeah. So I don't find RSV testing to be super helpful in my daily practice. Right. Uh, and, and so along with that, uh, say you have a kid with bronchiolitis, you know, getting the chest x-ray to not get the chest x-ray. If their vital signs are overall okay, their work of breathing's okay, chest x-ray, no, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and along those lines, antibiotic usage, really no role. I mean, this is a viral, That's viral right. thing. I think you could make a case for both, in both of those situations, both the chest x-ray and the antibiotics that there's probably a distinct subset, meaning the children who are the sickest of the sick who are going to be intubated and go to the PICU, there's pretty clear data in that subset of children that bacterial pneumonias and or other bacterial infections are not uncommon, right. you know, meaning somewhere between 25 and 45, depending on where you're reading, percent of the patients will have a, a co-infection. So I think if you're looking at that subset specifically, you know, adding antibiotics or a chest x-ray would be a reasonable thing. But in the mild to moderate RSV, there's really no role for the chest x-ray or antibiotics. Interesting. Any other uh, co-infections to worry about, like UTIs or any general bacteremia? Or is that mainly just in that sub-60-day, uh, you know, patient group? That yeah, in the young about? infants, sure. Yeah. You should do what you would normally do, probably, meaning right. you should look for other bacterial infections. But after that, it's pretty clear that the rate of co-infection with a bacteria is pretty low, probably around a percent, maybe slightly less. Right. And otherwise, again, uh, the kids who are looking okay. Right. A, a mild to moderate exacerbation. Case. Right. Yeah. You know, is there a reason to admit a kiddo for RSV um, it, who's not hypoxic? There's a, there's a subset of children, as I said, who are not hypoxic, but still have a tremendous work of breathing or tachypnea right. and poor PO. Those things tend to all run together. But occasionally you will find a child who isn't hypoxic, maybe they're getting there, they're 91, 92, but they're not, and they're not feeding well enough that you think that from a hydration standpoint, they need to be admitted to the hospital. I would say that that's an uncommon thing. These, right. these tend to run in the same person, the severe hypoxia, the respiratory distress, and the, the decreased PO. I, I think as a, maybe a, a caveat would be if, if the course of illness, if it's a young child and the course of illness has only been, say, two or three days and we're expecting it to kind of top out in three to five days, you might be thinking, oh, if this person's on the, the edge where I'm not sure a gray area, I should admit them because they're probably going to get worse. Or mm -hmm. if they're on the eighth day and they look in the gray, you probably say, oh, no, I think they should go home. I'm assuming the pediatric teams are super excited about those admissions. Yes, they could not be more excited <laughs> about this idea. <laughs> oh, man. So for the last part here, for sick kids with RSV, now this is a kid requiring oxygen, you know, work of breathing a lot, not looking well at all. How are you managing those kids? Are you using high flow oxygen, normal O2? Are you suctioning? Yes, no? We suction everyone. I would suction everyone. I don't 
I don't think the mileage is there for suctioning every 10 minutes or every 15 minutes, but I think suctioning them out when they get there is the right thing. You have a clean look at what can they do with unobstructed airways, at least upper airways. Right. And then we usually, or I will usually add oxygen in a low flow setting, a nasal cannula, and then allow that 15, 30 minutes to see what the patient looks like on some low flow oxygen. Uh, I, I don't give them a long time. And if that right. fails, then we're usually moving on to high flow oxygen. Right. And from a breathing treatment standpoint, this goes all over the place. I feel like this got changed multiple times when I was even a resident. And even it's, you know, nebulized hypertonic, albuterol, ischemic epi. Don't do anything. Pretend like you're giving them stuff that'll make them. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Can you shed some light on this? I think that there's pretty clear evidence that nebulized albuterol is not terribly effective in most bronchiolytics. That said, it, there is a subset of patients who respond to it. So you'll see albuterol being used in emergency departments a lot because you're right. Other than that, what you can twiddle your thumbs. So it's like, well, we can try this and there's very little downside. Right. If it doesn't work, that's totally fine. If it does work, that's great. You found a small subset of patients in which it has worked for. Right. And there is similar amounts of evidence essentially for racemic epi and nebulized saline. Um, there's probably some placebo slash, you know, <laughs> provider thinks that they're better but they may not be type of a response um so i don't i don't think that's probably right. where you're going to get most of the mileage it's going to be some kind of oxygen delivery system that's going to treat them yeah at the end of the day so and obviously if the patient's like critically ill not doing well why not with the breathing treatments that's right, right. i yeah. think exactly right Sa- same as the antibiotics if the yeah. person is critically ill and going to the picu no yeah. one is going to fault you for getting an x-ray thinking there's something hazy right. and saying well i'm going to cover yeah. you know 30 40 percent of these patients will have a bacterial pneumonia as a yeah. complication give so them breathing that's, treatments. that's fine give them a breathing yeah. treatment give right. them everything so lastly any role uh for steroids i think that the evidence is pretty clear in pure bronchiolitis that steroids is not helpful the the question is always really the same. What about the child who responds to albuterol? If that child responds right. to albuterol, should we give them steroids? In my personal practice, if I feel like I'm trying to be honest with myself and that person is a real responder, looks better after albuterol, I'll give them a, a steroid dose. Okay. And any steroids for the kid who has reactive airway disease at baseline? I mean, it's kind of hard in this age group you know, to really have that diagnosis early on. Yeah, I, I like dexamethasone, uh, kind of like uh, we were talking about the albuterol itself. There's very little downside in a single dose of dexamethasone. Right. Uh, so I, I lean towards treating as opposed to away from it. Right. That's well, not universally accepted. <laughs> Well, that's why, you know, we're having this uh, very real discussion because I feel like you would give us kind of an honest insight as to how a lot of these patients are being treated right now in the real world setting versus the most idealistic place where they're going to be like no breathing treatment for you ever uh, because you have very mild and or moderate, you know, things like that. So thanks, Dr. Bab. Appreciate it. We have covered RSV. That was a quick hitter. Stay tuned for part two, which is going to be influenza updates.